Throughout history, society has driven women to make difficult decisions in the name of survival. It's against the law to dress improper to your sex. Little Joe, you are the unfriendliest fella I ever met. And frankly, quite peculiar. What do you think would happen if they found out about me? Little Joe Monahan turns out to be a woman. He'd kill us. The Ballad of Little Joe. The West was no place for a woman, and so what's a girl to do but become a man? Or at least, that's what we were led to believe by Westerns like the 1993 film The Ballad of Little Joe, from whose trailer we just heard clips. The film tells the story of Little Joe Monahan, born Johanna Monahan, a real-life cowboy who dress worked and lived as a man. Why? Well, according to the movie trailer, to survive. Throughout history, society has driven women to make difficult decisions in the name of survival. That's what it says. But a look at the life of the real little Joe reveals Joe was pretty much accepted by locals, and no one was even very surprised when Joe's secret was discovered upon death. They always kind of suspected it. So that's odd. The movie makes it seem like the West was such a rough place, such a man's world, that a woman might have to become a man just to get by. But as we learned in our last episode in this series, the West was actually a surprisingly progressive place for women. Yes, it was rough, and yes, it could be violent, including violence towards women. At the same time, however, the scarcity of women gave them power because their skills were in demand. Women could actually do quite well in the West because they were women, not in spite of it. Nor is Little Joe the only person who's received this treatment in westerns. The same happened to Charlie Parkhurst, Sammy Williams, and many other historical figures who cross-dressed in the West. Films, books, and news articles going all the way back to the turn of the century, just after the closing of the frontier, have altered the stories of dozens of real-life frontier folk to depict cross-dressing as necessary to survive, despite evidence to the contrary. Why would they do that? it gets stranger still. See, it wasn't just women who cross-dressed as men in the West, but also men who cross-dressed as women. Historian Peter Bogue presents nearly as many cases of male-to-female cross-dressing as female-to-male in the historical record. Yet this is almost entirely absent from Westerns. Women cross-dressing as men get portrayed as needing to do so for survival, while men cross-dressing as women barely get portrayed at all. Hmm... And then we come to the most famous cross-dresser of all, Calamity Jane, who in almost every portrayal is depicted as dressing in men's clothes on a daily basis and looking awkward as a fish out of water when made to actually put on a dress. Yet a look at the life of the real Calamity Jane reveals that she didn't actually cross-dress all that often, seems to have identified quite comfortably as female, wore a skirt and bustle more often than not, and by all accounts, Cut a swell doing it. Cut a swell to present a fine figure. That's some authentic frontier lingo for you there, folks. So Calamity Jane seems to have been far more normal than we've been led to believe. Why would Westerns depict her as more transgressive than she was, while others get depicted as less so, or not depicted at all? What's going on here? What is being erased in this most American of genres, the Western? And what does it say about our sense of Americanness today? 
That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Nora, for making this episode possible. Folks, when we started this show a little over two years ago, our very first teaser episode began by invoking anxieties that some feel about the emphasis on diversity and sex and gender today. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but those days never existed. Ever since, every episode of this show has proven that there never was such a time. From hunter-gatherers to ancient Sumer to Greece and Rome to the Vikings to Victorian England, it was never that simple. Sex and gender norms are not written in stone. They change. They're always fuzzy. They're always complicated. And the diversity today just feels new because our culture is finally waking up to this fact. But at the same time, it's easy to say, well, sure, that was Greece or that was Rome. It's much harder when it's your own culture. And for Americans like myself, it's especially hard. Not only because we are internationally renowned as thinking we are the exception to every rule, but also because we have built up an entire mythos for ourselves about how the frontier made us tough made us real men, quote-unquote, not like those effeminate Europeans with their fancy cities and decadent luxuries. <laughs> now that may sound today like stretching the blanket, stretching the blanket, telling a tall tale. So yeah, maybe it is stretching the blanket to say the frontier made us special. But the idea was taken seriously in the 19th and much of the 20th century, and it was propagated through news, books, and movies, including the Western genre. Now, I'm not saying that this is some kind of consciously planned effort to remake America, not some kind of Illuminati conspiracy with somebody pulling the puppet strings from behind a curtain. No, for the most part, this was probably an unconscious series of assumptions biasing editors, authors, and filmmakers all along the way. But it could sometimes be quite deliberate. For example, Teddy Roosevelt deliberately re-engineered his public image along these very lines. As historian Peter Bogue writes, Smarting from snide remarks about his effete fashion sense and mindful of his squeaky voice and asthmatic and underdeveloped body, in the 1880s, Roosevelt purchased two ranches in the Dakota Badlands and spent considerable time there, making over his physique, his tenor, his health, his clothing, and his image. He then published extensively about his Western experiences, lavishing details on how the frontier transformed him into a manly hero akin to the cowboy. So there you go. That was quite deliberate. It's no joke. This was a real shift in American culture. As Peter Bogue explains, Myths of the West and the frontier worked hand-in-hand hand with period anxieties about cross-dressing and about strong and independent women to produce a heterosexualized and gender-normalized version of the birth of the modern American nation. 
So Roosevelt was responding to that new version of America's birth, which was already in the air in his time. And he contributed to it by reshaping himself in a very public way. This idea then made its way into scholarship in 1893 when historian Frederick Jackson Turner put forward his famous frontier thesis that America was born in and indelibly shaped by the wilderness of the frontier, and from there, it's history. Ever since, American news, books, and films, especially those of the Western genre, have been reshaping American manliness to fit this image, consciously or not. From Louis L'Amour to John Wayne to Clint Eastwood, the rough-riding cowboy now lies at the heart of American masculinity. Or at least, white masculinity. We'll have a look at how minorities got excluded from this a little later in this episode. But for the majority culture, as the story goes, it was the frontier wilderness itself that toughened a man up into a regular curly wolf. Curly wolf. A real tough guy. A dangerous man. Okay, so what does this have to do with crossdressers in the West? Well, to reshape America as born on the frontier, the tale of the frontier had to be told, but certain very visible elements of it had to be massaged to fit the story. If you've got this idea that men were men and women were women and the frontier made it so, well then, what do you do with women who dressed as men or men who dressed as women? How do you take those stories and make them support this American mythos? Well, it seems that American editors, authors, and filmmakers found a way. Cross-dressing happened a fair amount in the Wild West. And when I say that, I'm mainly talking about settlers. If you include the native inhabitants of the frontier lands, it was especially common, even downright institutionalized depending on the tribe. Many Native American tribes had third-gender traditions, such as the Winkte of the Lakota and Dakota, Nadli of the Navajo, Huame of the Mojave, and many more. And these third-gender traditions often included dressing in the clothing opposite the sex assigned at birth. Now, we will touch lightly on these traditions today, but each of them have such distinct cultural contexts that they really deserve an episode in their own right. So we will wait for our episode on Native Americans in the West in order to go into depth and really do them justice. Nevertheless, I did want to acknowledge at the outset that there is a larger context here. But among settlers on the frontier, cross-dressing was not institutionalized, but it was surprisingly frequent. And when I say surprising, it's not that it happened any more frequently here than elsewhere, but rather surprising because the West has been made out to be this place of manly manliness. So it's surprising to find them in just as great a frequency here as anywhere else. Historian Peter Bogue, in his book Redressing America's Frontier Past, presents close to 100 historically verified examples, and in about roughly equal numbers for female to male and male to female. So this was not infrequent, and yet portrayals in news books and films have spun the image of the West as a place where such people really just kind of shouldn't have existed, according to the story, and if they did, well, there must be some rational explanation. And that is how we arrive 
at the Western genre where women dressing as men appear in abundance but do so in order to survive, whereas men dressing as women almost never appear at all or only in very special circumstances. See, if the frontier wilderness toughens you up and demands you become a real man, quote-unquote, in order to survive, then maybe it even demands women do the same. The narrative of women dressing as men in order to survive fits hand-in-glove with the mythos of American masculinity. Bogue calls this the progress narrative, part of the American mythos that eased 20th century anxieties about cross-dressing and non-normative sexual and gender expression. As progress, quote-unquote, came to the West, the frontier closed and its dangers were tamed, and the need to cross-dress in order to survive evaporated with it, leaving it comfortably in the past a blip in history. Never mind that it still went on as much as it ever did, the important part was that a troubling phenomenon right at the focal point of American history had been explained. On the other hand, what was not so easy to explain by the progress narrative was men dressing as women. It just didn't make any sense. If the wilderness demanded you become a real man to survive, even if you were a woman, well then why would any man become a woman? It goes the opposite direction. It doesn't, it, it undermines the narrative. And so such folks had to be excised from the story. That's why in Western cinema you see gals and chaps all the time, but you almost never see chaps in bustles. It's all about this American mythos that we were made tough and manly by the frontier. And this, in turn, is only the American version of a much larger pattern seen across cultures. For example, we saw in our Viking Genderbender series how women who took up arms like men could earn respect, while men who took up the womanly art of sorcery were reviled. See, in a patriarchal culture, the male sphere has higher status, and so women attempting to enter that higher status sphere can be explained as an attempt to gain status. However, men who lower themselves to the status of the women's sphere, well, that's far more troubling and difficult to explain. And this sort of thing, this is still with us today. When you see Sharon Stone as a gunslinger in pants in The Quick and the Dead, it probably doesn't even stand out to you as cross-dressing, even though it would have been at the time in the Wild West. That's how far we've come. But if you saw Clint Eastwood in a dress, that would definitely stand out to you, wouldn't it? And that's how far we have yet to go. This is the larger pattern that we are seeing here in the Wild West as well, just tailored to serve a particular purpose in American mythmaking. Okay, so how did this happen? And what was the West really like for crossdressers? That's what we're going to be focusing on in this episode. But before we really get into it, we should back up just a moment and get a quick primer on what cross-dressing is. Okay, so let's begin with our quick primer. As we heard in our earlier episode, Wolves and Women's Clothing from our Sex in the Third Reich series, cross-dressing refers to wearing clothing associated with a sex different from your own or from that assigned at birth. It used to be called transvestitism, but that term is now considered outdated and possibly derogatory. The preferred term today is cross-dressing. Now, this is typically thought of in binary terms, divided into female to male, where an assigned female person wears the clothes of a male, and male to female, where the opposite is the case. However, 
the binary does break down rather quickly when you start to consider, you know, non-binary folks, or intersex folks, or dress that's androgynous, or dress that mixes clothing for both sexes. I mean, is that technically cross-dressing? It starts to get a little fuzzy. The best takes that I've seen recently online to address this are cross-dressing is when you dress outside your gender category. Okay, so kind of like going beyond the binary a bit. Or even just, it's cross-dressing when I want it to be. So essentially, what we've got is we, we just have to acknowledge that the categories here are blurry at best and are evolving along with the preferences of the community. Full stop. Okay, now within that community, there are folks who attempt to appear so much like another gender that others would never suspect, and this is called passing. Others make no such attempt, leaving it clearly obvious that cross-dressing is happening. And it's important to note that none of it necessarily implies anything about sexuality or gender. It may go along with homosexual or bisexual desire, but it need not. Heterosexuals may cross-dress as well. Likewise, it may go hand-in-hand hand with a transgender identity, as seems to possibly have been the case with little Joe Monahan. And indeed, cross-dressing is often an expression of transgender identity. But on the other hand, cross-dressers may be entirely comfortable with their assigned sex, as seems to have been the case with Calamity Jane. So in short, cross-dressing, sexuality, and gender are three separate concepts. In the Venn diagram that we construct in our imaginations, we have to picture three different circles that overlap partially, but not entirely. Finally, we should talk about pronouns. Today, a person's preferred pronouns are theirs to decide, but when it comes to historical figures, well, they didn't have that choice in their day, and we can't go back and ask them what they would have preferred. So the best that we can do is make a judgment call. I will generally attempt to use the pronouns that seem to match how they tended to present themselves to the world, but really, it's anyone's call. All right, with that quick primer out of the way, let's now talk about how cross-dressing in the Wild West has been portrayed by editors, authors, and filmmakers. Consciously or unconsciously, they adopted different strategies depending on who they were writing about. We will look at three specific cases. First, women who cross-dressed as men, such as Little Joe Monahan. Then, men who cross-dressed as women. And finally, we'll look at the special case of Calamity Jane, who didn't actually cross-dress that much, but has been made to do so in the Western genre ever since. And through these cases, we will see how cross-dressing was transformed to support the notion that American manliness was forged on the frontier. That's what we're going to look at in just a moment, but first, we will take a short break, and we'll be back after this. And now, the History of Sex presents this. Come one, come all, let's write, it's easy, step right up and make American history. You, sir, how about you? Oh, uh... Go on, Jeb, it'll be fun. Okay, what do I do? Oh, it's quite simple, really. You know whack-a-mole, right? Yeah. Well, it's quite similar. Simply take this mallet and whatever pops up that doesn't fit proper American history, you whack it. Understand? Okay. All right, here we go. Uh... Woo! There, hit it, hit it. <laughs> oh, that, that's a woman in a vest, I think. Yes, oh, now it's too late. You must be quick <gasps> about it, son. Watch now. There, <laughs> hit it. Uh, uh, that one's a man in a bustle? Yes, what the devil are you waiting for? Oh, game's over, so sorry. How about you, miss? Why don't you give it a try? 
It's okay, Jeb. I'll show you how it's done. That's the spirit of mallet for the little lady. There you are. All right, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I got one. What? No, that was Teddy Roosevelt. What the blazes is wrong with you people? Give me that. Whatever. We're out of here. <laughs> Lame. <sighs> Anyone else willing to give it a try? Try their luck. Anyone? Anyone? Oh, come on. You folks love this game in the 20th century. All right, we're back. So what was it like for women who cross-dressed as men? Little Joe Monahan wasn't the only women who dressed as a man in the West. There were many, and they did so for a variety of reasons. Some did so for reasons of personal safety. Bogue does present three cases where women traveling alone put on male attire to avoid unwanted attention, and there were likely also more cases than that. So that does fit the survival trope here. But that was by no means the only reason. Other people cross-dressed to join the military, to obtain work in jobs exclusive to men, or for some kind of criminal activity. Now, these are all practical reasons that don't necessarily reflect anything about one's predilections or deep-down feelings about oneself. But then there were those who appear to have cross-dressed for a very different reason, for personal identity. These are people like little Joe, who seemed to have cross-dressed as an expression of a gender at odds with that assigned at birth, or a sexuality alternative to the norm, or a predilection for putting on opposite-sex clothing that's not explained by any more practical reason and may simply be a personal expression. Bogue presents no less than 15 such individuals in the historical record, and it's these folks who present a problem for the American mythos. Their stories were frequently edited, transformed beyond recognition in news books and movies. For example, here's what happened to the story of Little Joe. The real Little Joe Modahan lived a quiet, solitary, and fairly unremarkable life as a cowboy turned miner turned rancher in the Owyhee Mountains of Idaho. He moved there from New York at around the age 20 or so, and was apparently accepted by locals there, despite not passing particularly well as a male. An 1880 census does record his sex as male, but it notes in the margins doubtful sex. So clearly wasn't passing so well. Nevertheless, Joe is respected by locals. We have letters to attest to this. And he lived the rest of his days as a man until his death in 1904, whereupon the coroner identified his body as that of a woman. Now at that point, a local acquaintance by the name of William Schnabel took it upon himself to notify Joe's kin back east of his passing. And to that end, since he didn't know exactly who his kin were, he wrote a letter to the police of Buffalo, New York, and the police then turned the letter over to the papers in order to advertise for those who might know his relatives trying to find them. However, from the moment that the papers got hold of Schnabel's letter, Joe's story began to mutate. An article in the American Journal Examiner is a case in point. Although Schnabel had referred to Joe as he and him, the Examiner editors changed this to she and her. Further, although Schnabel spelled Joe's name in the masculine form J-O-E, Editors changed this to the feminine form of the name, J-O, and finally, to explain the cross-dressing, they added 
this fine detail. In those days, a journey across the continent was an undertaking attended by many hardships and not a few dangers. This was the more so in the case of a woman traveling alone. It was on this account that the brave little woman decided to don the more conventional attire of the male sex, discarding her own dress with her past. Now, historians know that this was not the reason that Joe started cross-dressing. It was not in Schnabel's letter, for one thing, but it doesn't explain why Joe would continue cross-dressing after arriving in Idaho, and also a separate letter from his foster mother to someone else reveals that Joe had actually been cross-dressing in boys' clothes since childhood. So it was a lifelong thing. But editors made the conscious decision to insert this detail into Joe's story. So that's weird. But they were not content to stop there either. They also concocted completely out of thin air a love affair for Joe. This is the closing chapter in the life story of a beautiful girl who loved not wisely but too well a villain by whom she was deserted in her darkest hour who was driven from her home into a pitiless world. What? Where did that come from? Suddenly there's this relationship with a man that goes all catawampus Catawampus, askew, awry. This was certainly not in Schnabel's letter, and historians have no evidence whatsoever of a relationship of any kind of Joe. Not with a man, not with a woman, not with anybody. We just don't know what Joe's relationships may have been, if there were any. But the editorial insertion of this love affair served a purpose. Not only did it spice up the story with a little drama, there's clearly some sensationalism going on here, but also, it clarified that in spite of the cross-dressing, Joe was, in fact, unambiguously heterosexual. Now, this was a new concern germane to the era in which we're writing here. This was 1904 when this was published. Earlier reports of cross-dressers typically would remark on the oddity of the cross-dressing and attribute a rational, quote-unquote, reason, like survival, but starting around the turn of the century, just after the closing of the frontier, cross-dressing became increasingly caught up with sexuality. See, the concept of heterosexuality had been established in academic circles by this time, and it was starting to gain traction in the wider culture, as was the concept of sexual inversion, which was, it was sort of a catch-all category for alternative sexuality and gender. Kind of like saying LGBTQ, but without any of the nuance or understanding that each of those letters represents something different. It was just this kind of vague category of different. So the editors of this article, published in 1904, took it upon themselves to fend off the possibility of sexual inversion by placing Joe comfortably in the unthreatening category of heterosexual. So in total, these newspaper editors made Joe into an unambiguously straight, cisgender female victimized by a man in a man's world and explained away the cross-dressing as necessary for survival in a Wild West dominated by men. And in so doing, intentionally or not, they removed any threat to the new American mythos. The message here is that yes, the frontier does indeed breed real men, quote-unquote, so much so that even a woman might have to become a man in order to survive. At the same time, it completely erased 
the real little Joe, whose cross-dressing began back east and had nothing to do with surviving in the West. In fact, Joe was respected in the West. Schnabel writes in his letter that these editors were working from, he writes in his letter that cowboys of the era, quote, treated him with the greatest respect, and he was always welcome to eat and sleep at their camp. And this was in spite of the fact that his secret was not particularly well hid. Schnabel also wrote in that letter, It was always surmised that Joe was a woman. He was a small, beardless, little man with hands, feet, stature, and voice of a woman. So locals always kind of knew, but they accepted him anyway. Now, this was not always the case for cross-dressers in the West. Some were accepted, but many others were rejected, even violently. So it is true that if you were a cross-dresser, you might want to keep that dry. Keep that dry to keep a secret. Some were accepted, some were not. Often it was those who were enmeshed in their local communities who were more likely to be accepted, while those who were outsiders or drifters, those tended to be the ones who risked violent reprisal. So Joe was one of the lucky ones in life, accepted and respected. Nevertheless, the papers transformed Joe's life into a desperate need to dress as a man in order to survive the West, and Joe's story only grew from there. After a flurry of sensational newspaper reports in the early 20th century, Joe's story resurfaced again in the 1950s in books and newspaper columns, and was even made into a stage play by dramatist Barbara LeBeau. And finally, in 1993, Hollywood picked up the tale with the Ballad of Little Joe, from which we heard clips at the start of this episode, and the title once again spelled the name J.O. in the feminine form. All of these retellings of Joe's story pretty much kept to the same mold of an unambiguously cisgender and heterosexual woman putting on men's clothes in order to survive. Now, like I said, it wasn't just Little Joe that got this treatment. Many other examples followed the same pattern. For example, Charlie Parkhurst, better known as Stagecoach Charlie, lived as a man in California since the 1850s and was only discovered upon death, and yet the newspapers mutated his story along very similar lines, making him an unambiguously cisgender, heterosexual woman, also with a love affair with a male that went awry, and even Charlie's name was likewise changed. Charlie became Charlotte, or Lottie, in the papers. Likewise, so it went with Sammy Williams, a Montana resident who lived for some 50 years as a man, and after his secret was discovered upon death, Boise's Idaho statesman ran an editorial about it, arguing that women might gain enhanced prerogatives, freedoms, and power by dressing as men, and called it, quote, a marvel that more women have not adopted the course of Sammy Williams. In other words, the article is supposing that Sammy's motive was economic survival. And in this case, we can see particularly clear how women cross-dressing as men is easily seen as attempting to gain the higher status of the male sphere. So those are several more historical examples, and there are many more that I could list. But you also see this pattern even showing up in fiction. For example, in the 1971 film Hanny Calder, Raquel Welch stars as a woman assaulted by men who puts on pants and quests for vengeance, while in the 1995 film The Quick and the Dead, Sharon Stone stars as a gunslinger also on a quest for vengeance against a man who'd done her father wrong, and she does her gunslinging in men's attire, as if a pistol could not be fired in a dress. 
Annie Oakley would protest. Annie Oakley, by the way, never cross-dressed. She was always quite feminine in her presentation. She did defy gender norms by being a sharpshooter, but in all other respects, she lived and presented as a woman. Now, in both productions here, Hanny Calder and The Quick and the Dead, a male relationship goes awry and a woman takes up cross-dressing in order to survive, while remaining unambiguously straight and female. It's almost a stock character at this point in the Western genre. So that is how the stories of women who dressed as men were transformed to fit the American mythos, both in news articles of historical figures and even in fiction from the Western genre. But now, what about that other side of the coin? What about men who dressed as women? How did that go down? The Western genre is so full of female-to-male cross-dressing that it has become something of a stock character. But what it is not full of is male-to-female cross-dressing. It's almost entirely absent from the genre, even though it appeared in no small numbers in the Wild West as well. Peter Bogue presents more than 50 historically verifiable instances of male-to-female cross-dressing. Now, we have far less information on the lives of these individuals than we do for female-to-male cases. Typically, we only get to know about male-to-female cross-dressers through arrest records, and such prisoners tended to be quite tight-lipped about their motives. However, from what we can tell, their reasons, too, tended to be quite varied. Of the 50-plus cases, about half reveal some kind of identifiable motive, and of those 25 or so, about half were motivated by practicality, whether as a disguise for criminal activity or for a practical joke or for theatrical performance, which was quite common for men to play women on the stage at the time. There is one case that cites personal comfort as the reason for donning women's dress. Henry Snell claimed that men's vests and trousers were too restrictive for his rheumatism, so he preferred dresses. So that's about half the cases presented by Bogue, but the other half are cases of personal identity. So male-to-female cross-dressing for personal gender or sexual expression or some other reason endemic to one's own self was not rare either. There were plenty of historically verified examples. Bogue is able to assemble about as many as there were for female-to-male. And yet, male-to-female cross-dressing is almost entirely absent from the Western genre, and in the paltry handful of instances where I could find, almost all of them were motivated by disguise to evade pursuers or perform some kind of criminal activity. And I could only find two instances in the entire genre where this was not the case. The first is from the very recent 2021 series, Good Lord Bird, which depicts the lead-up to the Civil War, where a young black boy nicknamed Onion is mistaken for a girl by the white abolitionist John Brown and made to wear a dress while traveling with him. Now, this cross-dressing seems sort of symbolic of the experience of blacks forced to conform to the perceptions of whites, even those purporting to help them. And so it's, it's not really disguise per se, but it's not personal identity either. The only other instance I could find in the entire Western genre, and maybe I've missed something, you can write in if you know some other instance that I'm missing here, folks, but the only other instance I can find in the Western genre where male-to-female cross-dressing might be motivated by personal identity is a character played by none other than Iggy Pop in a scene from Jim Jarsmuch's 
1995 film Dead Man. Now, in that scene, Johnny Depp's character stumbles upon three men in the woods, one of which wears a sundress and bonnet, apparently the wife of the other two. The scene is clearly there for comedic effect, yet it holds the honor of being the only instance I could find where male-to-female cross-dressing goes unquestioned and unexplained and might very well portray a matter of personal identity. So that is all that I could find for male-to-female cross-dressing in Westerns. It's been almost completely excised from the genre, even though female-to-male cross-dressing appears in abundance. Why? Well, if the underlying notion of the Western genre is that the wilderness turns you into a tough, real man, quote-unquote, then the presence of men dressing as women in that same wilderness, it doesn't exactly fit that notion, does it? Consequently, it's conveniently forgotten in books and films. Now, for newspapers, it's a little bit of a different story. It was not so easy to omit from the papers. After all, a man in a woman's dress does make for an intention-getting headline, and that's kind of hard to ignore. So editors could not so easily excise them from the written word. But they had to find a different way to square it with the American mythos, and they did so by going out of their way to call out these individuals as foreign or racially other. For example, Mrs. Nash, we don't know her first name, Mrs. Nash, who famously accompanied Custer's 7th Cavalry Division as a laundress and was written about in Libby Custer's journal, is noted repeatedly as having Mexican heritage, a dark complexion, the stubble on her upper lip was attributed to her Mexicanness, and she was even simply called the Mexican as like a nickname by most of the soldiers in the division. So that really does it. Like, here we have a cross-dresser who just happens to also be Mexican, and the one is attributed to the other. And it wasn't just this Mrs. Nash, either. Meanwhile, newspapers reported on Edward Martino as a, quote, Spaniard, Chin Ling as a, quote, Chinaman, Bill Smith as an African, a certain Frank, last name unknown, as a Negro, Edward Livnash as a Negro wench, and a person who was called Lady Jim or Squaw Charlie is remarked upon as a Paiute Indian. And the press even concocted a story of his tribe supposedly punishing him with women's clothing after disgracing himself in the Pyramid Lake War of 1869. This is unlikely, but it may reflect a dim awareness of customs among certain Native American tribes involving third genders who wore clothing of the opposite sex to mark their different and sometimes sacred status. Now again, we will leave such native customs for another episode where we can do them proper justice. For now, it's sufficient to note that settlers had a poor understanding of these customs, and scholarship on it at the time was not very good either. Newspapers may have drawn on this dim awareness of Native American third genders in order to cast male-to-female cross-dressers like Lady Jim as racially or ethnically other. Now, in addition, the Mexican-American War, which was still smoldering in recent memory and which saw a feminization of Mexican soldiers during the war as sort of a propaganda technique, well, this may likewise have contributed to the readiness of newspapers to emphasize the foreignness of Spanish-speaking cross-dressers like Mrs. Nash and Edward Martino. They're, again, playing on this ethnically other category in order to explain away the cross-dressing. Meanwhile, long-standing racial stereotypes of blacks as docile and therefore of 
questionable masculinity, I guess, lent a ready explanation for cross-dressing in cases where any hint of African origin might be noted. And the traditional hairstyles of Chinese men, you know, with their long braids at the time, appeared feminine to whites and likewise provided a ready-to-hand rationale. As a result, American manliness in the mythos was saved. Although these folks were often, in fact, Americans just as much as anyone else, emphasizing their racial or ethnic status cast them as aliens to their own kind. Where male-to-female cross-dressing could not be removed from the American mythos, it was cast outside it. So, in the end, the experiences of cross-dressers in the Wild West and their real motives for their choice of attire were obscured by newspapers, books, and films. We've seen how female-to-male cross-dressers were made to appear straight cisgender women who could not help but dress as men in order to survive the frontier. And now we've seen how male-to-female cross-dressers were either conveniently forgotten or made into not-quite-Americans. Last but not least, we have one last case to investigate, that of the special instance of the most famous Wild West cross-dresser of all, Calamity Jane. So in the light of everything said so far, Calamity Jane would seem to present a startling exception to the rule. Her story actually mutated in the other direction, being made more transgressive than she really was in real life. But a closer inspection reveals how this too supports the American mythos. Now, there is very little that we actually know for certain about Calamity Jane's life, as so much of the lore about her is grossly exaggerated, up to and including her very own autobiography that she wrote herself. In her autobiography, she claims, for example, to have begun wearing men's clothes to join Custer's army, but no historical evidence supports that she was ever even in the army. There are soldiers who are like, she wasn't in that army. We have those letters. So there's just no evidence to support so many claims in her autobiography like this. And indeed, her autobiography was published in order to publicize an upcoming tour of hers. And so, well, it seems she was not above stringing a whizzer. Stringing a whizzer, telling a tall tale. Calamity Jane was more than willing to exaggerate even her own life details in order to add a little oomph to her tour. And so, consequently, the real reason for her cross-dressing, as with so much else about her, we just might never know. It remains in dispute. However... From what we can verify of the real Calamity Jane, it does seem that Martha Jane Cannery, that was her real name, only rarely cross-dressed. There is a famous photo of her in buckskins, and she did sometimes wear them as daily dress, but the vast majority of photos show her in a dress, and this seems to have been how she presented to the world most often, that is, you know, as a cisgender female. Moreover, she seems to have been straight as well. She married, she bore a daughter, and she may have resorted to prostitution at various points in her career. Now, she did engage in many male-coded activities, including cigar smoking and hanging out in saloons, and she was apparently quite fond of the Who Hit John. Who Hit John? Whiskey. But apart from these acts of gender defiance, 
she seems to have been pretty much within the norm for her day. And yet, portrayals of Calamity Jane tend to exaggerate her gender defiance and make it into a greater deviation than it really was. For example, in the 1878 dime novel Deadwood Dick on Deck, or Calamity Jane, the heroine of Whoop Up, best title ever, other characters in the novel ask if she is a woman, and she replies, Well, yes, I reckon I am in the flesh, but not in spirit of late years. You see, they kind of got matters disconfuddled when I was created, and I turned out to be a gal instead of a man, which I ought to have been. Now, this seems to suggest a deep-down trait potentially inherent to Jane's identity. I ought to have been a man. Well, that almost seems like something that a transgender person might say today, although this was written more than 40 years before the concept of transgender identity was even proposed in the 1920s. So the novel seems to make her more transgressive than she was in real life, bringing her more in line with the trope of figures like Little Joe, Charlie Parkhurst, and Sammy Williams. And later portrayals follow similar lines. For example, in the 1953 film Calamity Jane, starring Doris Day, she portrays a Jane who dresses daily in men's attire and appears like a fish out of water when she is made to actually put on a dress. Yet such portrayals rarely fail to leave her unambiguously straight and cisgender in the end. A later dime novel sees Jane marry, as does the Doris Day film where she ties the knot in the end with Wild Bill Hickok. That never happened in real history. Now these portrayals also tend to rationalize her cross-dressing as survival. Deadwood Dick on Deck explains it as due to, quote, a man's defiling touch, a villain who foully robbed Jane Forrest of her maiden name, but never her honor. In other words, Jane's story evolved to fit the same pattern as the others. And although it went in the opposite direction as most, it still supports the same fundamental notion of a man's world where only real men, quote-unquote, can survive. And in such a world, it simply won't do to have Jane in a dress most of the time. No, it's got to be buckskins, buckskins, buckskins. And so it went with the tale of Calamity Jane. Her story was made just transgressive enough to be titillating and to support the American mythos, but not enough to threaten the cisgender and heterosexual norms of the day. And this seems to be true almost all the way up to the present, but there is an interesting twist on the horizon. I mean, the portrayal of Calamity Jane, with which listeners are no doubt most familiar, must certainly be Robin Swigert's irascible, lovable jerk, foul-mouthed Jane from the HBO series Deadwood. It's Jane Cannery calling for Duck Cochran. Now, just as with the others before this, Jane is made to wear buckskins all day, every day, and appears totally a fish out of water when she doesn't. And in this respect, she follows the established pattern to a T. However, in this rendition, and this is a spoiler alert, so if you haven't seen it, pause the episode here. In this rendition, she engages in an affair with another woman. Deadwood differs from the others in making her non-heterosexual, even though the real-life Jane was totally straight, as far as we can tell. Likewise, in the Netflix series Godless, there's going to be a spoiler here too, in the Netflix series Godless, Merritt Weaver plays Mary Agnes McNew, a widow who begins wearing men's clothes after her husband is killed 
in a mining accident. Now, this is a fictional character with no historical antecedent, but interestingly, she too takes up an affair with another woman. So what are we to make of this? I mean, is the Western trope of the female-to-male crossdresser changing to explain it differently? In this case, it seems to be the crossdressing is being explained as a result of alternative sexuality. And if so, does that somehow emanate from a changing view of Americanness itself? Well, it's probably too early to tell. I mean, two data points are not much of a pattern. I admit that. But it is certainly curious that as values change and greater diversity arrives in the Western genre, it doesn't necessarily mean that historical figures get portrayed more historically accurate. It only means that we transform history to suit the needs of the day and the myth that we tell ourselves about what it means to be American. In this case, does it mean that we're trying to say that America is and always was accepting and tolerant of these sorts of things? I don't know if that's historically accurate either, and it is certainly probably what we would like to tell ourselves. So we'll leave it there, but in closing I'll just say that personally, when it comes to historical figures, I prefer that we simply acknowledge the corn. Acknowledge the corn to admit the truth. Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. If you like what we're doing on this show here, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you having a hootin' and hollerin' good time in the Wild West wearing whatever you darn well please or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, folks, next up, I am hoping to dive into the African-American experience in the West. Did you know that as many as one in four cowboys in the West were black? That is true. And also, there were entirely black towns as well. So what was that like for them? That's what's coming up next. Fingers crossed if the episode comes together. That's what we're trying for. I will see you then, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.